Well, I want to say hi to everyone here on campus. Uh, wonderful to be with you, um, looking out and seeing many of your faces, sadly behind these masks, but to see your eyes, it's, it's a joy. I, I want to welcome those of you who are joining online as well, uh, whether here in Metro Detroit or around the world. I know there are people watching right now around this country, and so I want to say welcome to you. Uh, wonderful to have you with us uh, as well. Um, if you're new with us today, I'm really glad that you're here. Um, I had the privilege to serve on this amazing staff team for almost 10 years uh, to serve under the leadership of Pastor Scott. And this is just a really great church. So if you're new, I, I, I just I encourage you to lean in. It's a wonderful place uh, for you to be. Um, when we left in May, uh, I got to say bye to, to many of you and receive cards and blessings on our way. And Rachel and I were just overwhelmed by your love and support of us wishing us on uh, to Orlando. And I just want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Um, and it's wonderful, just absolutely wonderful to be here with you. Uh, we are in a sermon series looking at this amazing book in the New Testament called Philippians. And uh, this section that was just read is really a powerful section on how the gospel transforms our lives. Uh, how the gospel transforms our lives amidst the upheaval of our world, amidst the chaos we may find ourselves in. Even in the chaos, God can bring transformation through his gospel. So two things this morning we must consider. Two things, just two things, part of our sermon. Uh, the credibility of the gospel and the freedom in the gospel. The credibility of this gospel and the freedom in the gospel. So let's look first at the credibility of the gospel. And, and what we see more and more in our culture today is that there is a growing skepticism uh, to the claims of Christianity, to the claims of who Jesus was, who he said he came to be in this world. Uh, people who struggle with the person of Jesus, struggle with uh, the Bible, and right there in the midst of all of this struggle that many have, maybe you have this morning, is in this passage we see the credibility of the gospel. Uh, let's look at verse 14. This is what Paul writes to us from prison. He says this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 14. He says this, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Uh, as Scott shared last week, Paul is writing from prison. He's writing from a prison in Rome. Uh, and he, he's not there. He hasn't been brought up on any charges. He's just been brought up on that he's preaching the gospel and, and people are trying to take his life. <laughs> the Romans have put him in prison to save Paul from these crowds. Uh, and, and now Paul, he awaits the future decisions of what they will do with him, whether he will live or whether he will die. And what we see here is the credibility of the gospel. It is that these highly successful, highly acclaimed cultural elites like Paul were willing to give up everything that they had worked for, everything that they had built, that they were willing to cast aside their resume and their resources to follow this man, Jesus, who claimed to be God. You see, this is the provocative claim of Christianity that separates it from every other religion and every other way of viewing the world. This is the claim. Jesus Christ is truly God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. He, he died on a cross for our sin. 
And he rose again on the third day from the dead. That's the gospel. No other religion says that. No other worldview says that. You really cannot put Christianity in the same category with any other religion. Uh, in fact, there was a, a man named Hudson Smith. He wrote a, a book uh, many years ago called The World's Religions, uh, where he traveled around and studied all the religions of the world, and he wrote about it really in this classic work. And Hudson Smith says, after examining all of these lives, after examining all of these religions, there were these two lives that stood out above all others. Uh, these two lives that when you looked at them, when you, when you examined their life, when you looked at the people that followed them, you not only said, who are you, but their lives were so countercultural, so different, that you said, what are you? <laughs> what, what are you that you live this way? Hudson Smith said two people, Buddha and Jesus. And, and what, what happened as these people began to follow Buddha, uh, they began to, to question, oh, he must be divine, he must be a God. And Buddha was very quick to step in and say, uh, please do not put me in that category. I am not divine, I am not a God. Uh, follow my teaching, follow my doctrine, follow my instruction, but I am not a God. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, believed that he was divine. In fact, he not only said, hey, I am a God, he said, I am the God. I am the God of all of history. This is where Jesus is different from every other religious figure that has ever lived. Every other religious figure has said to us, I know the way to God. Jesus said, I am the God. Christianity is the only major religion of all the, the category of major religions, you know, about 10 of them. Christianity is the only one of them where the religious figure who led the movement also claimed to be God. And no other major religion offers that. You see, so every other start-up movement with somebody who claimed to be God, someone who, who rose up with a following, who claimed that they were God in the flesh, that movement was snuffed out. Uh, have you heard of David Koresh? Something happened to these followers of Jesus to make them turn from rejecting and denying him before his death on the cross to now being willing to lose all social status, all physical accommodations, to sit in a prison awaiting potential execution. I don't know if you've seen the movie Hook. It's one of my favorite movies from when I was a kid. It was a movie from the 1990s starring Robin Williams. And if you've never seen the movie Hook, I just feel sorry for you that your life has somehow missed out on something grand. But if you haven't seen the movie, uh, it's the story of, of Peter Pan who has returned to Neverland. Peter Pan is now old, he is out of shape, he's wearing grown-up clothes, like out of a scene from Brooks Brothers' store. He cannot fly, he can't fight, and there's now a new leader amongst the Lost Boys, the Lost Boys that followed Peter Pan, the, his little tribe. There's a new leader amongst the Lost Boys now named Rufio. And there's a scene where Rufio takes out his sword and he draws a line in the sand. And basically telling the Lost Boys, you must decide. Is this old, out of shape, Brooks Brothers wearing man, the Savior who's come to set us free? Or is he just some quack, 
pretending to be something he is not. The line has been given to us in the sand, and you must decide. But a little bit later in the movie, we see that he was truly the Savior they had longed for. He is the pan. He can fly. He can fight. He's no longer wearing his Brooks Brothers clothes. He's in a Peter Pan outfit, which was a bit uh, distressful seeing Robin Williams in that amount of tights. But he returns once again before the Lost Boys, and there is no question now who he is. In fact, in the scene, Rufio, the leader, has come before Pan now, and he has appropriately fallen to his knees. He holds up his sword, and he simply offers these four words. You are the pan. You are the pan. You see, this movie is really giving us the picture that the gospel calls us all to. There is a line in the sand, and we must decide who he was. You see, what we don't see in the movie is nobody sits in the middle. Nobody stands on the line. Nobody says, well, he claims to be Pan. He can't fly. He can't fight. But he sure seems like a nice guy. Sure seems like he had some good things to say. Nobody does that. He is either the Pan... Or he is a sham. And friends, this morning, you and I, we cannot sit in the middle. If Jesus is not who he claimed to be, then we have to decide either he was horribly wicked that he would allow his followers to be manipulated and killed on his behalf, or he was horribly deceived that he thought himself to be God when he is not. But to believe that he, Jesus, was a good moral teacher with some good things to say and was not God was not an option he gave us. We, we, we cannot sit in the middle. We cannot hold that opinion with any level of consistency. He's either who he said he was or he is not. And, and what we see throughout the Gospels and what we see through the New Testament is the people that encountered Jesus, uh, there was no middle option in their lives either and how they responded to the invitation to follow this man Jesus with all the claims that he offered him. Either people met Jesus and they said, I don't want this man anywhere near my life. Kill him. Or, in seeing this man and his invitation, they said, this man is my life. Kill me. Kill me. Two options. The line has been drawn in the sand, and there's only two options. We cannot sit in the middle Jesus did not leave us that option. I know it's incredibly difficult to believe there was a man who walked this earth, who claimed to be God, but I really cannot give a proper explanation for the absolute explosive growth of Christianity in the first century. Why people would be willing to sit in a prison awaiting potential execution. Why people would give their very lives to this man. How do we explain that there would be people sitting in prison waiting their execution for a snake oil salesman? It does not make sense. You cannot sit in the middle. Uh, Kenneth Scott Latourette was a historian, and he examined the evidence and the growth of Christianity in the first century, and this is what he said. 
Never in the history of humanity has this record ever quite been equaled. Uh, Never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, without the aid of physical force or of social or cultural prestige, achieved so commanding a position as Christianity. Uh, Friends, the, the line has been drawn in the sand. And you must decide what to make of these claims. Either Jesus was a complete sham and an imposter rivaled like no other, or like Rufio, we will indeed need to fall to our knees, surrender our lives, and simply declare four words, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Those are the only two options. He simply cannot be a nice moral teacher with some nice things to say. He did not give us that option. Do you you see the credibility of Christianity? That people gave everything they had to this movement. They gave everything that was them to follow this man, Jesus. They were burned alive. They were drowned upside down. They were in prison awaiting potential execution. No matter what they faced, they walked in some sort of freedom. Amidst the chaos, amidst the upheaval, there was a freedom to their life. How did they do that? Well, that brings us to the second thing we must consider, the freedom in this gospel. You see, in our passage, that despite being chained to a guard every moment of his day, Paul lived open-handed and free because of this gospel. Uh, This is what he says in verse 21 of our section. It says this, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Uh, uh, Paul Paul looks at his life. He essentially says, whatever happens, uh, whatever comes of the future, everything is going to be okay because I have all that I need. I've been saved by sheer grace through Jesus Christ. This is how you know you've gotten the gospel. You're able to live open-handed, Despite the circumstances that you may be facing, you're able to say, whatever happens externally, I have all that I need internally. Have you said that? That's how you know you're getting the gospel. You see, in our modern culture, uh, they have a very different way of talking about freedom and how you and I find freedom. You see, our modern culture essentially says that it's these external circumstances in my life, it's these external issues in my life, those are the problem. Uh, My boss, my my job, my finances, my spouse, these ungrateful little human beings in my life known as my kids, that coworker, that person who wronged me, It's these external circumstances that we look at and we say, those are the problem. And what I need to reclaim is my inner truth. Uh, My my truth, as you would hear today. That's where my freedom is. The the freedom is in my truth. The, The issues are external. The salvation is internal. That's our modern way to freedom. You do you. You do you. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. 
Let it go. Let it go. Please don't sing. This is how musician Tom Petty uh, put it in one of his lyrics. He said this, Listen to your heart. It will tell you what to do. The issue is external. The salvation is internal. The gospel, you see, is the exact opposite. Freedom comes when we acknowledge the issue is internal. That the salvation is external. That the salvation comes outside of myself. That that I'm saying, I need Jesus to save me from me. That's when you know you're a Christian, when you can say that. Not just at one moment in your life, but that becomes the reality of your life. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer from the 1500s, he said this great line, all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. All of life is saying, Jesus, would you just save me from me? All of life is coming back to that place, that the issue is me. The issue is where am I putting my trust? What am I hoping in? The issue is, what am I living for? There's something in my life, something in your life that you are living for, that you're hoping in. Paul Paul said here in this passage, for me to live is Christ. This morning, where are you looking for freedom in a thousand other places than the gospel? Paul tells us in this passage that there's an equation that we must use when examining our lives. We must ask ourselves, what is it that I am living for? And so the question this morning is, how would you complete this statement? For me to live is what? For me to live is what? For me to live is a a promotion, uh, a new job, a better partner, more money, more power, more grateful kids. Seeing that person finally get their justice for what they have done. Seeing 10 pounds less on the scale. Now, these things aren't inherently bad. Most of them are actually good things. But when these good things become ultimate things, when when they become what we live for, we find that they cannot give us the freedom that only the gospel can give. The freedom of the gospel allows us to say, to to live as Christ, uh, because I don't have to do anything. Everything's been given to me. I'm loved by sheer grace. I'm able to live just for what Christ has done, but to live for anything else will only bring bondage. You see, when you say, to live is my career, you will plunge yourself into your work, and it will consume you. Uh, You will work more hours than you should. You will struggle to sleep. Uh, You could lose your marriage. You could destroy your relationship with your kids. Uh, You'll have trouble turning it off because you believe that life only has meaning and purpose if I'm advancing my career, but it never stops. Uh, What happens when you reach the top? Now everyone is gunning for you, and that's not freedom. When you say, to live is my family, Uh, You will plunge yourself into caring for the needs of those ungrateful little humans in your life. Or those ungrateful big humans as well. 
Your life only has value, and it rises and falls whether you can hold the family together. You will struggle to have quality self-care. And the narrative you keep telling yourself is, life only has meaning and purpose if I am loved and accepted by this group of people. But it never stops. Because when the relationships have issues, which is a virtual certainty in this life, you will struggle to have freedom and only find bondage. When you say, to live is my appearance, you will plunge yourself into countless attacks of how COVID has gotten the best of you, it has gotten the best of me, but how COVID has gotten the best of you, and you will continue to live by an internal narrative that life only has meaning and purpose if I finally shed this weight, or I finally get over this insecure part, or whatever it is. But if this is what you live for, you will be in a prison locked from the inside. You see, as you age, you will find yourself walking by a store and seeing your reflection in the glass, and you will have to take a second glance at who is this image that I am seeing through the glass. And then you realize, and you cannot believe, that that person is you. You will be driven to despair because inside you will keep saying, who is that old man? That's beginning to happen to me. And some of you are like, Tyler, you're young. Just wait. It gets worse. When you say, to live is the right president in office, you will tether your freedom to the hopes of what the next president, the next senator, the next governor will do, and you will live in absolute fear of the wrong person getting into the office and absolute disillusionment when the person that you wanted in office doesn't live up to your expectations. You will keep saying that your life only has meaning and purpose if the government is run by the people that I think should be there. But what happens when the person you voted for does not get elected? Are you driven to fear and worry? And friends, that's not freedom. Paul said, to live is Christ. You see, all these are good things. Care for your body, you know, care for your family, care for your career, please vote. But when good things become ultimate things in our lives, and when we live for them, we will never experience the freedom that only the gospel can give you. Now, I know what someone's thinking, because there's always somebody. Tyler, what do you know? You're a pastor. You only work on Sundays. There's always a cynic in the room or online. How do I know this? Well, what I can tell you is I know this because I'm a pastor. And I'll put it delicately. Pastors have a historic tendency to always round up on the numbers whenever we're, we are with other pastors. Doesn't matter what the number is. Could be your church attendance, your church budget, your church staff, your church conversions. Pastors always round up. And the reason I know that they always round up is because I always round up. When I'm around other pastors, I feel this need inside of me to justify my existence. I'm with other pastors, and they'll ask me, 
Tyler, tell me about your new church. How's it going? You know, with COVID, how's your attendance? You know, and I'll say, you know, we're, we're doing okay. We're, you know, we're down a little bit, but we're about 10,000, give or take, on a Sunday, which is an absolute lie. Why do I feel the need to do this? Why am I so insecure? It's because I'm not trusting what Christ has already accomplished for me in the gospel. Why do I need this other pastor's approval when I have the one approval I really need and he died to give his life for me so I would never lose it? Friends, whatever prison door you have locked from the inside, the gospel reminds us again today that there is freedom for all who want out. There is freedom despite the darkness of your circumstances and there is hope no matter the chains. Uh, look at Paul's life. Uh, we've already talked about the freedom that Paul had about the future. He's abandoned the outcomes. He's, he's living like, whatever happens, I'm good with it. But notice how Paul sees his present circumstances. He's, he's in chains. Uh, the Roman guards uh, would take six-hour shifts uh, to be handcuffed. The uh, best word translation for the chains that Paul had is, is a handcuff to these Roman guards. They would take six-hour shifts uh, to be handcuffed uh, all the time with Paul. Every six hours, a new guard would come. So when Paul ate, he was in chains. When Paul went to the bathroom, he was in chains. When Paul slept, he was in chains. In every aspect of his life, he was in bondage. But because of the gospel, in every aspect of his life, he was free. Just look at the way Paul says this in verse 12. This is what it says in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has, all, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Where you and I look and see chains, Paul sees freedom. He sees God's work. He, he says the gospel is advancing. How does he know this? Well, remember these guards, they, they have taken six-hour shifts to be handcuffed uh, to Paul. It's one thing for Paul to be chained to a soldier, but it's a completely different point of view for a soldier to be chained to Paul. I'll say it this way. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with somebody who could not get away? Where the world sees chains, the gospel enables you to see freedom. And Paul tells us the gospel is advancing. Uh, this is a Greek term for, for battle combat. The gospel is advancing. We know that these guards are one by one coming to faith in Jesus and, and that that gospel is spreading into Caesar's household. This is how Paul ends his letter to the Philippians in chapter 4. He sends his final greetings, and these are the greetings he said. He says this, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. You see, the gospel keeps us from being driven to despair despite our chains. Uh, it, it, whatever place in your life you're seeing chains today, the gospel allows you to see freedom there, that you are loved by sheer grace, nothing to earn, nothing to prove. Paul is filled with joy. Where are the places in your life that you have been looking and seeing chains that today, because of what Christ has done, you can see freedom? No matter who you are or what has happened, 
No matter the sins that you can't forget, God cannot remember because all who have surrendered their life to Jesus can now walk in freedom because you have been set free. Despite the circumstances that you may be facing, despite the insecurities that you may be feeling, despite the sin and addiction that may still stick to you like gum on a shoe, the gospel declares to every one of us this morning, no matter how hard it is for you to believe, that you, my friend, are forgiven. Nothing left to earn, nothing left to prove, nothing more to work for, just the good news that Christ has accomplished everything from beginning to end for you and for me. The simple question is, have you received that? Have you made that your own? Have you found the freedom that only he can give? Charles Wesley was a great hymn writer uh, in the church, and at one point in his life, for years, he thought he had actually gotten the gospel. Uh, That is until May 21st, 1738. Wesley wrote in his journal these words. The Spirit of God chased away the darkness. Wesley was in a prison, and he didn't even know it. But he says, the Spirit of God chased away the darkness. And this is how he put it in one of his hymns. He said this. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. Do you want that kind of freedom? Do you want that kind of life that no matter the circumstances you may be facing this morning, despite the upheaval that is in our world, despite the chaos all around us, do you want the kind of freedom that no matter what you're facing, you can walk out? There's only one place. In fact, there's only one person. Run to Jesus and find in Him that He... And he alone can set us free. Let's pray. Our Father, we we thank you for the ways the gospel gives us a new perspective. Uh, Despite the circumstances we are facing, despite the upheaval of our world, there is freedom that only you can give. And so this week, would you empower us to live as your people who've been set free, released from the prisons, that we would see your amazing love and your amazing grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.